Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Art of Money podcast, where I share honest conversations about how money influences our personal experiences, beliefs, and relationships, infusing this taboo subject with a loving dose of dark chocolate and inspiring encouragement. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, which is my flagship program, year-long money school, and global community. Integrating money healing, money practices, and money maps, The Art of Money is my holistic framework, blending therapeutic, body-based practices with the real-life tools you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your relationship with money. So you can say goodbye to that dusty old budget and hello to healing your money life. Learn more on my website, barrytesler.com. For now, grab something to sip on, get comfy, and tune in to today's episode of the Art of Money podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Art of Money community. And we are smack dab in the middle of the pandemic. We are about week nine for those of us in the US. And I've been doing some of these interviews when I feel excited about a topic, when I feel that the community needs more information on the topic. And so today I have the honor of interviewing Michael Bovee and he is the founder of Consumer Recovery Network. His bio says that he's a family man and a debt geek. He's a super geek, and actually he promises to use his superpower for good because most people really need help when it comes to debt and credit. And I first heard about Michael because I've been collaborating with a woman named Jerry Detwheeler for well over a decade. I've interviewed her at least three times, maybe four, about consumer debt and all the options of how to pay down debt or um, uh, consolidation, negotiation, bankruptcy, all of that. But a few years ago, she moved on to business loans. And when I asked her, who I could interview in the future or send people to or ask questions of, she said, send everyone to Michael. So I've been doing that for a few years and we've never officially met and spoken. So today is finally, finally the day and welcome, Michael. Thank you, Barry. It's super, super nice for you to invite me to participate. Well, I really appreciate it. Um, I've been wanting to interview from for some time just to go over, you know, all the debt options on how to pay it off um, and, and how that all works and to be updated on that for the community. But I also know during this time of COVID-19 that there's changes happening in, you know, in financial services all around and there are changes with credit card debt and consumer debt. And so I'd love to hear what you know about that. Before we begin though, two questions. I'd, I'd love to hear just a little bit of where you live right now and your, your family constellation, who's with you at this time, um, during this time, and then a little bit about how you got started doing this work. I see all the way back in 1994. So let's start there. Okay. Um. I, I live just outside of Portland, Oregon right now. My wife and I got uh, fed up with the winters in North Idaho after both our daughters flew the coop and we decided to fly too. And so we came back to more familiar territory of the Pacific Northwest and are, we're in Washington, just on the other side of the Columbia River from, from Portland. Um, I just, my daughters both came back due to COVID. We had our youngest was finishing her last year in college and of course she got kicked out to finish her semester um, just remotely. And she just moved on to the next chapter of her life back in, in North Idaho. She did some student teaching before she becomes a teacher. And then my oldest came back and, and hung out with us for about six weeks and went back to Boise. So, and that was yesterday. So it's just my wife and I, who we've been together 25 years and our dog who's been with us for 11, our cat who's been with us for two. 
<laughs> wonderful wonderful so um empty nest and then your daughters came home and you've been able to enjoy this time with them i i, I mean i have an 11 year old going on 12 it, you know there's there's challenges in different ages but as a budding teenager it's definitely been hard for him to be away from friends especially he's the extrovert of our family um so you've had that time with your daughters again and now they've they've left again enough i i thought it was awesome yeah i i you know because you never really figure you're going to get with two adult daughters, all of you back in the house together for a prolonged period of time, other than like a holiday or something. Yes. I obviously I would have wished that to happen under different circumstances. But yeah, it's fantastic. I, I enjoyed it. I don't know if they did. Mm, wonderful, wonderful. And I love the Portland trees. Oh my God, we um, over the years have loved visiting the trees and the food. And the people in Portland or, or in the surrounding areas. So lucky for you, you're back. Yeah. Wonder the food, the food is a draw for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you become so interested and as you say, so geeked out on this area of our financial life? What it's pretty strange. I know it's <laughs> because if, if people understood the level to it, to which I, I geek out on this stuff over the years, they would just like, gosh, this guy's got a good life. Um, I was approached by somebody, a friend who had, you know, he's just very distraught about some debt issues that he had. And this is prior to telephone long distance deregulation just before. And you could easily find yourself if you were, if you just didn't know any better and we were all young at the time and he didn't, I didn't. Um, you could end up with what he had, which was about a $1,500 phone bill as a sophomore in college because he had somebody staying with him calling overseas, not even talking that much. It just rang up very quickly and he didn't have the money to pay. So it went to collection. And in that collection effort back then in the 90s, the early 90s, there was really a lot, of, most collection was local, especially on utility bills and phone companies. And so it was a downtown Seattle collection agency that called him and cussed him out. And I was, he was telling me about this. I thought, that doesn't sound right, man. That's, that can't be true that they get away with that. And so sure enough, next day I went down to the law library and I just researched it. And I ran into the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act and found that, yes, that's, they can't do that. And so I called around to a couple of places, a legal clinic, campus, and a couple of other places, attorneys. Says, oh, your buddy should just pay the bill. I didn't know any better and there really wasn't a lot of consumer advocacy, consumer law type of um, organizations. There was one and I, I, I got to meet them later, but I, I didn't know of them at the time. And so I just, I, I actually impersonated my friend. So my first foray into resolving a debt for somebody other than uh, a family member or something and I, I had to impersonate him because he was so, I don't know, there's people, I'm sure some of your listeners that are awfully non-confrontational. And so he wasn't up to the task and I played his role and I settled his debt. Did a great job. Didn't even know what I was doing. I actually, because it was a local thing and the way that you had to pay, you had to go down there. So I had to be my buddy and then to buzz me through, it was a secure building. I had to. Mm. And so I go in the night by pit. So that happened in 94 and I didn't do anything else with that other than he let the bag out and some people would, uh, he told some folks, and they would approach me with questions here and there. And I liked to research, so I would research the answers to them too. So I developed a little bit of a reputation, but it wasn't until 1998 when I decided that I needed, uh, our second child was born and I needed something that kept me more home-based because my job took me out of state. And I, I really felt like this was a niche that I could do well in because I was passionate about it. And I started working full-time with a group that had a ton of their own constituents, their own members, that had debt problems and it just took off like a rocket. I just, I really, really enjoy this kind of work. Um, I've been an advocate for legislative changes at the state level, many states actually, Colorado, California, others at the federal level for rule and law changes um, to curb some of the abusive practices in the debt relief services industry, some of which were much more prevalent over a decade ago and not, not as much so now, but because of those, those rules and those changes. So, so I'm, um, I, I, I have a soapbox. I climb on it as soon as somebody lets me. I'll pull it right out and I'll, I'll go right to the tippy top. I, um, 
I, I like to help people more than I like to do much of anything else. And so when you're passionate about something like that, it's not a job. You spend more time at it than you probably should, or then your wife tells you is it okay uh, if you want to stay married, which I, I suffer in all of those ways in the geek out mode. Like some people pick up a novel and take it to bed and I take legislative, I take bills, I take, um, you know, just court cases, some interesting things. And that's what I read to put me to sleep. I understand. What was your work that you were doing before you stepped into this world? Yeah, I was a commercial crab fisherman up in Alaska. Oh. Yeah, my boat is on the show that people watch, The Wizard. It's, uh, I was a deckhand on that right before. That's what I mean. It's like I, uh, I left for my last season, and I was, it was a three-month season. I was gone for three and a half months. Um, my youngest, Maddie, was just a couple of months old. And I left, had to leave during that time frame. Leave her, leave my wife. Turns out she was really colicky that whole time, which I missed. Okay, that was nice. But other than that, everything sucked. And I came home and she barely knew me. And I just, I had to figure something else out. That was in 1998 when I figured this out. Hmm. So interesting. I mean, she never, she was, she thought she was marrying she was marrying a crab fisherman, you know, yeah. and then who knew that you, that you could deal with authority issues, that you're a great researcher, that you're a great impersonator, actor, <laughs> and that you were really good at taking on legislation and laws and that you love to help people and all of that, you know, um, fascinating, wonderful. Well, we are grateful because, you know, over the years, I, I feel one of my roles is to find people who geek out, you know, in different ways. And so I have the person who geeks out on the bookkeeping or geeks out on tax law or geeks out on, you know, on and on and on, on student loans. Um, that one used to really trip me up and, you know, felt like the bane of our existence when it came to financial issues. And I interviewed a guy named Travis Hornsby a month ago and he was so hopeful. <laughs> about student loan debt and and um issues it just blew my mind so thank you for doing this around debt and credit yeah thank you so let's let's dive in to some of this some of this material um when i you know mentioned earlier that i interviewed jerry debt wheeler on what we at the time were calling the four options around debt you know, which is paying down debt, the different options around that, consolidation, negotiation, bankruptcy. Are those still the main four? And would you talk about those a little bit? Because I wanna, I want you to share um, some tips, tools, resources for our folks, for anyone that has consumer debt and to help them feel they have more resources and feel more hopeful about these four options and what you feel are the best or you know it might really depend on the situation and someone may need to reach out to you so that they can share their particular details um and then you know i want to go into a bit about what's happening with COVID 19 and what's changing but is this a good place to start with these sure. four options okay yeah and and i'll try and break them down succinctly um i had a fifth option it's always been an option it's not a, a a great option, but it's a necessary option, but it's more relevant than ever before in my entire career working with people to help them triage their debt situation. And, and it's do nothing. So we'll talk some more about okay. that. Okay. But, um, you know, really it boils down to you either can pay or you can't pay. If you can pay, then all of the conventional norms, all of the conventional wisdom about the debt snowball, tackling whether it's your highest interest debt first or your lowest balance first to get those psychological wins and a debt put behind you, right? That's, that's normal, right? Just try and, try and keep your costs down, um, you know, how you live with money, your relationship with money, and how to live on less than half of what you make or your take home or all of those conventional wisdom, the normal stuff. What I focus on and, and where I specialize is when things aren't going well, and not just a little not well, but a lot not well. And this would be where a debt triage situation where now you're looking at, at what are traditionally three options for intervention. And that is to consolidate your bills using a, and this is intervention, again, using outside sources or using and doing something outside of your influence. 
working with a nonprofit credit counseling agency, they have these debt management plans that are available that traditionally um, are going to be about 2% on average of your enrolled balances. Well, not all accounts can be enrolled into one of these plans, but your payment, if it's all credit cards, for example, and it all, let's say it's you know $30,000 worth of credit cards, 2% of that is $600, and that's your new monthly payment for 60 months or less. Those plans are highly regulated in every state. The fees are very nominal, and in some cases free. Uh, just depends on what you qualify for. But your, your set payment of $600 is for five years or less. I think the national average time frame for you to complete one is 52 months, so they don't necessarily always go 60. And that's really hands-off. That's really autopilot. That's everybody's in agreement, all of the participating creditors, the mainly brick-and-mortar banks that, that participate in those, the online lenders, not so much. Um, so you've got a situation where it doesn't necessarily ding your credit like a bankruptcy or a settlement would, and you're not dealing with stress and pressures as related to collections. Right? So that's one. And, can that's we, and can we stop right there for a second? And uh -huh. so... Do you find, do you feel that in certain situations is a good option and do you have resources and links to places on your site? I'm sure you do. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. It's a, it's a starting option because it's the kindest, gentlest, softest intervention step. And so if you go to the consumerrecoverynetwork.com website in the top navigation, there actually is a debt management tab. Click that, right? Um, that will go through plenty of explanation. There's a credit counseling specifically the, 80 or so nonprofit agencies around the country that deliver on these programs. Um, I talk very detailed about those, what to look for in a company because they're all do the same things and they're plugged into the bank's computers the same way and the fee structure, nobody's going to get about really a better shake than the next company. It almost boils down to who has the smiliest voice on the phone when you're, okay. when you're talking to somebody and look, you call one of these places. Most of them aren't pushy. It's not a sales experience. It's an information experience. And the end of which you're trying to get a quote, a down to the penny quote, not 2% like Michael said as an average, because these plans have to be between 1.7 and 2.5%. The average tends to be around 2% of the enrolled debt. And that's it. You sleep on it. You're not on fire usually when you're talking to one of these agencies. There's no emergencies. You don't have to sign up into anything. And please don't. Just get the information, sleep on it for a day, a week, a month, whatever. You'll know within short order if it's something, get the caution and I'll, and I'll, spill the beans here on, a, on what I talk about and some of the material that I have in this, and even some of the YouTube videos that I have on this topic. And that is that the drawback is that it is a set payment. You have to make that payment. If you don't make that payment, you're off the plan. And so committing to a payment plan stretched out over 60 months, a lot can go wrong over 60 months. So be sure when you enroll in one of these things that you're pretty confident. It's, it's usually, it's, it's for somebody who has stable income. Okay. A stable job, right? But mm -hmm. curveballs can happen just like Here that. Here we are. Right. This Here is the are. biggest curveball I think our country or the globe has ever. The globe. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and this is an option for people if they can't figure out on their own how to, you know, pay off their debt on their own within a year or two. Um, and they're just really having trouble with that and they need a third party and they need a set amount and they need a lower interest rate that's yep. when this is a great option right because it can tell consolidates two or more debts that you have potentially really lowers the interest rate right mm -hmm. and gives you a set payment okay that's, that's a good option for some people. It is. It is. It's definitely, it's what I start with. It's like, you know, this type of repayment plan has been around since the fifties, but it became far more popularized when, when credit cards became more popular. Um, it became even more so because it was encoded. These programs were, or the agencies that provide these programs are part of even BAPCA or the bankruptcy law changes from 2005. So uh, it's very normal. It's built in. And banks, traditionally, if you open up, in fact, the CARD Act made these programs even more of a focal point because when the CARD Act passed, um, I think in 2008, it requires every bank statement that you get in the mail or in your email to have a toll-free number somewhere on that statement. You get one every month. It says, hey, look, if you're having trouble paying your bills, call this toll, and it's a toll-free number. And it leads to probably a call tree of a rotation of, of agencies that participate in that toll-free line. 
Um, so your banks even have to refer you to these places. Right. And worst case scenario, if you if you can't make that monthly payment, you know, you get a curveball. Is then what happens then? Like, what's worst case? Is that when it starts going into these other triage options of of negotiation and bankruptcy? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so, and that takes us to the next thing. It's just like, okay, so I talk to a nonprofit agency. I can't. They, their quote, I just can't do it. Or I have too many of those online loans or even payday loans, worse yet, and none of those participate. There's not enough benefit for me to enroll in the plan because I just, I just can't. I'm past that point. And that is the case for probably 60 to 70% of the people that would call one of these agencies. They're just not going to, their, their situation is such that it's just, it doesn't make financial sense. There's not enough of a payment benefit to enroll. So what you've got are the remaining two uh, mainstream triage options. And I'm going to skip settlement, which is what I'm recognized expert in, and just go right to bankruptcy. And this is what I do with somebody, by the way. Barry, I, I do this on the phone with people. I have a full schedule every day. I spend time with every with people that I've never met before every day, weekday, and uh, at least half my day. And I talk to people for the first time and I go through a triage of what we're doing today on the phone. So we're kind of, I start with what can you afford if, the, if you have steady income and see if you can manage just one of these debt management plans through a nonprofit agency. And then I skip to chapter seven bankruptcy to see if they qualify. And the reason is, is because debt, when you when you're hit the debt wall, if you hit it hard enough and go splat, a lot of times you just skip to bankruptcy. But what most people, there's a lot of misconceptions about bankruptcy, at least chapter seven. And that's the kind you want as a consumer to be able to file personal bankruptcy is to get a fresh start. Chapter seven, the national average cost is about $1,800. You have to qualify and that's a state specific median income test for your household formation, how many people in your household, what's your household income. They take the last six months of income basically times two, and that's your yearly income. And that dictates whether or not you can qualify for chapter seven, plus there's assets, whether or not you have too much equity in your home, things like that. But when you qualify for chapter seven, it is the heavyweight champion of all things debt relief because it's inexpensive, it's immediate, Debt collectors can stop bothering you as soon as you file, as soon as you hire your attorney, actually, you have to call your attorney. It can get rid of judgments, garnishments, super powerful option, very powerful. And you don't even have to wait until, like I said, if you hit the debt wall hard enough, you just skip all those things. You go right to chapter seven, you get a fresh start. And so what people don't know, and I sometimes I'm how they're finding out, is that when you file chapter seven bankruptcy, it's on your credit report for 10 years. Well, people use that to assume that their credit's trashed and they're not gonna be able to get anywhere with their adult financial goals for that 10 years and nothing can be further from the truth. You will get pre-approved credit card offers in the mail a month after your bankruptcy. I'm not kidding, from Capital One and some others that really focus on that, that market. And they're not great rates, that's true. And they're certainly not great credit limits either, but they're there nonetheless for you to take advantage of, start rebuilding. You can go out and get a car loan, a brand new car, at a decent interest rate. And by decent, I'm talking like four, five, six percent a year after your bankruptcy. And you can qualify for FHA underwriting for a home loan two years after bankruptcy, three years for conventional financing for a mortgage. So it is not a death knell to your credit when you file chapter seven. And it's very inexpensive. You just, you just have to qualify and you just have to want to and, and go ahead and, and be able to do it. So that's, that's a second option. There's a 13, there's a chapter 13 bankruptcy. Um, usually I find that somebody who has the ability to come up with cash inside of a 24 to 36 month window on their own can settle their debts with their creditors and not have to do chapter 13 bankruptcy. But, but there is a place for chapter 13 as well. So let me pause there and ask you about the psychology or the emotions that come up for people um, as they're on the phone with you day in and day out, you're hearing everything, probably every single version of good life, you know, ha having a good life and also having, you know, beautiful things and also very challenging things and curveballs that happen. Um, and then getting on the phone with you and sharing the ins and outs. Will you just share a little bit 
about that? Are you are you just at the point where it's so neutral to you? Meaning, I, I clear you know anyone who's a geek like you, like there's no judgment. You've heard everything. You want to help people. You know you. There literally, is no judgment. There's no judgment. Like you've heard every single imaginable scenario. How do you help people? Even though you know you're not a psychotherapist, but you have to deal with some of the emotions and moments. Like share a little bit about how you support people that way, even making a choice around bankruptcy. Cause people do feel it's a death. It's an end. Um, they have their own judgment, their own self judgment around it. How do you support people through that to make this decision if it's the right one? So it's, it's a little bit, so there's two sides to this. There's the fact that I might be the first person they've shared all of this financial turmoil with, because it's something that we keep, you know what? People will go and talk about a family member being addicted to barbiturates or, you know, something, some kind of drug addiction, um, alcoholism or something. They'll be more open to talking about the, in their circle of influence, something like that, than they will money problems. It's, it's always been strange to me, but it's true. It's been my experience. And so I might be the first person that they've really just kind of let it go to. And so there's that element and that is an emotional thing, right? And I'll, I'll speak to that. But for me, it seems a little dispassionate, but I, I, again, I have been doing this a long time and I stay committed to being on the phone with people every day because I actually like what I do. And for me, I try to bring all of that focus into a math exercise. So in the span of a 15 minute phone console, I can usually help people through a waterfall triage process based on maths. And so we can, we can, through math, we can learn, hey, these are the things that you can't do because mathematically they're impossible for you to do, given your current financial situation, your income, your debt. And let's focus on the things that you can succeed with. And so that we get to really quickly. Now, when I'm working with someone, because I do work with people and help them implement their strategies, then I get more into the weeds and or more into some realities that are not I'm, not, I'm not trained for those things. I'll give you an example, very, very recent example, because it was this week and uh, last Friday. So Friday and then a follow-up call yesterday. And this is a lovely mother and father on speakerphone with me. And they're talking to me about their son's death. And their son, uh, their son is given permission for the parents to be involved because they're the source of funds that are going to resolve their debts. And uh, they're a successful family and that their child is having some trouble, not just financial trouble, but some other trouble. And he's going to not be working or doing anything for a couple of months while he seeks help with that. And yet there's this like 40 grand worth of credit card debt. And so when I'm talking with the parents separate of, of the son and you know, I get to where I can, I get to try to help them from a perspective of having probably seen this dozens, if not hundreds of times when it's, when it's something repetitive. And also from personal experiences, have I ever known anybody that needed to seek help, you know, and, and kind of check out for a couple of months and leave some financial wreckage? And how do you deal with that? And how do you take responsibility for it if there's an emotional attachment, like to a child or to a brother or somebody, you know, close to me? And so I, it's almost... It's impossible to separate yourself from yourself. So some of your life experience goes into helping people when you think it can, it can help them beyond just the financial part, but just from an emotional support perspective. Because again, a lot of times I'm talking to people about things that they're not talking to their own family yeah. or their clergy, um, their circle of influence. It's just it's taboo. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's a math problem. All of this, uh, my friend Steve wrote, he's wonderful. He, he uh, also runs a, a wonderful debt relief website and he's been involved in the debt relief services industry on three continents. Um, probably the smartest guy I know about. this. And uh, he loves to say it this way. Debt is just a emotional, uh, it's, it's a emotional problem wrapped in math because our behavior and the way that we react and think about money and interact with money is the root problem. Um, the, and then there's the debt. So you take care of the debt. You've got some other things that you really need to work on. So. An emotional problem wrapped in math, wrapped yeah. in math problems, exactly, that you have to find solutions to, yeah. um, that you feel really comfortable, you know, that you've been doing over and over and over. You know, that's the part you feel really comfortable with. And that you listen. You know, I hear that you listen and that you're there and that you may be the very first person, the first responder 
um, to be hearing these stories and these private, intimate, what feels like really vulnerable details you yeah. know, about their life. Some of it's heartbreaking, actually. You know, a lot of death and, you know, well, actually, the, the thing that breaks my heart the most is that I wish, I, and this happens every day, virtually, anyway. Very, I wish people would reach out to me soon because I'm on the phone with them and they're telling me they're, because usually there's, they want to, they, they want to release this because especially if I'm the first person they talk to and they tell me the chronology of events. And part of those, that chronology is all the things they tried to do and tap into to, to keep the status quo with optimism. Things are going to turn around. I'm going to find that job. Da, 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 da. And they tap into resources that are exempt from predators like an IRA, like a 401k. They, they, they exhaust all of their available resources that are available to them 20 years from now or 10 years from now when they're no longer able to work. And, and, and they could have made some decisions and protected those things. Those are the ones that, that hurt me the most because I, can't, I don't want to sit there and call those things out and say, wow, I wish you hadn't done that because how, how effective am I at just making them feel bad about some decisions they made? But those are the ones that hurt the most. Okay. Okay. So really wishing that people, people would reach out to you sooner. And so here we are with, we talked, well, we didn't get into so much about how to pay it down, but lots of people talk about that. I've talked about that. Like, you know, Suze Orman, Dave Ramsey, they're more extreme, but they have lots of, this is how you pay down debt, you know, highest interest rate snowball. Then there's consolidation as you spoke to um, lots of great resources, companies that do that. That's tried and true. Um, if that's right for you. And then chapter seven. Um, now let's move on to, are you calling settlement the bankruptcy or is settlement more of a word you use around negotiation? And negotiation. Okay, negotiation. So let's, let's go into that option. Okay. Yeah. So this is the most nuanced approach that you can take to deal with your debt. I am probably most known nationally for helping people help themselves. And so I publish, I have over a hundred videos on YouTube about how to settle your own debt. It's not rocket science. It's just that there's a formula to follow. And if you follow the formula, you can do this on your own and not have to pay anybody any fees. My industry is very, uh, a lot of high fees. And that's part of the problem with the programs that people start to try and settle their debt. When the fees are so high, it prolongs your success. That money should go to your creditors, right? And, and get you out of debt faster. And so I've got over 100 videos, over 200 articles on my site that teach people how to do this. And then there's plenty of people that, okay, Michael, thanks for all that information. But no, I, I'm not going to do it. And some people shouldn't do it, by the way. If, if you're, again, if you're non-confrontational or a little bit pensive, um, these are seasoned debt collectors that you come up against when you have to negotiate. And that's probably not a good combination. They'll, they'll win. You'll pay more than you need to. And a pro would probably pay for themselves if you hire one. So that's, let's get to the meat of it. The most nuanced part of, of debt relief is settlement because it doesn't live inside of four corners. A debt management plan, you have to qualify. You can't have too little money to meet the required minimum payment, this combined consolidated payment. Otherwise, you just can't start. And in bankruptcy, you have to qualify. And it's also a very formal process that is very much delineated. I mean, it's, it's, you, have to, you cannot color outside the lines in bankruptcy, you either do it or you meet this criteria or you don't, right? You either in the 13 and you make your payment or you don't. You lose the protection of the court. So with settlement, there's none of that. It's actually a very nuanced per creditor, per individual, somebody that looks very bad on paper, like a this that collector pulls up in their credit report, it looks like somebody pulled a pin and dropped a grenade on it. There's just credit report shrapnel everywhere. Um, that person looks a little less collectible to a debt collector than somebody who is still paying their mortgage or a car payment and student loan. So there's these individualized things that make it um, more nuanced for each person. And then there are creditors that have recovery goals and standard operating procedure for how they're going to go about negotiating a payoff. And so that mix of creditors will influence the plan that I would design for somebody. And I do, and I am able to cover that all in these consultations that I do. It's like, okay, well, you're going to prioritize this creditor because they're super aggressive. They're aggressive quicker than anybody too. And then you're going to do this creditor because 
they don't give you payment plans for your settlement. They want it all in a lump sum. That's just how they are. And then these two over here, those are going to get sold off to a debt buyer right around when you're 12 months late. And those debt buyers sue a lot, but guess what? They offer 24-month plans on their half-off settlements. So if you, you can tell that there's some moving parts in a debt settlement plan that has a lot of the flexibility that's missing from other programs. I tend to want to encourage people to try to come up with plans. If you want to finish a debt settlement plan in the sweet spot, come up with the resources to settle all of your debt in 12 months. If you want the second best duration, try and come up with a plan that gets all your settlements done inside of 24 months. But because, and maybe we can talk more about this with COVID-19 um, and even prior site last year this time, there are certain creditors and debt buyers that you can do settlements of say half off and spread that half off over 36 months. So you can run these things longer. It's just the longer you run this debt settlement race, so to speak, um, there are increased risks. And so that's the negative. That's the, oh gosh, I don't want anything to do with settlements. What do you mean I'm gonna to talk to debt collectors? What do you mean debt collectors are involved? What do you mean there's phone calls? Um, it's worse than that because if you don't pay certain creditors long enough, they use the courts to collect from you. And that is what, that's what prevents people from maybe thinking about looking into it more. It's super scary and it should be. And you need to think of it that way. But at the same time, there are ways to build, strategically approach your plan to mitigate any and all risks of being sued, at least for a lot, a lot of people. But those are the, the benefits or the flexibilities and you, you get out of debt for less money um, as opposed to a lot of time in chapter 13, but there are risks. So, you know, when I first started hearing about it years and years ago, it sounded aggressive. You know, it sounded risky, it sounded more like on the edge or radical, you know, and then I had a colleague who I've interviewed for my money memoir series, who's a really successful woman in business. She, in the crash, in the real estate housing market crash in 2008, um, she chose to go this route instead of choosing bankruptcy. She went the settlement route. She had the chutzpah, the personality, the, you know, she, she also was in a really tough, challenging place after that crash when so much of her money was in real estate. And she went down this route and, you know, I don't remember the exact numbers of what she settled on, but it was really successful for her. And it was the first person I knew personally, you know, and as a colleague and someone I really respected that went down this route. And I was like, oh, you know, um, so tell me a little bit, like, philosophically, like, how did this become something that you felt um, that you became more, the most known for? And I know you've had so, such success with it. How did this become like one of your main things that, well, maybe it leads back to all the beginning. You're good with the 30 issues. You're good at research, right? You can impersonate. They, you can be an actor, you can take on legislation, you, sh you can take on things that don't feel fair. So and that's, you nailed it right there. Yeah. Okay. For me, I, I got very angry when my friend told me how he was treated. And I'm not kidding, he was berated. He was made to feel super duper small and a lot of cuss words. And that just, that's what made me wake up the next morning and go do research is because I was, I was, I was offended. I was angry for him. Hmm. More so for him than he was for himself, probably. Um, when people come to you with outrageous things, and in the 90s and into probably the early, early 2000s, there was still kind of the wild, wild west for debt collection. And you could settle a debt and have that balance that you settled get sold to another debt buyer, and that debt buyer could sue you and win. It's just ridiculous. And so I was involved in this and heavily involved full-time when all of this ridiculousness was still very prevalent. And so my goal was to, and again, when, when, when you're dealing with things that are math related and you cannot color outside the lines, they're super easy to explain and get beyond. And so I wasn't really all that interested or excited about nonprofit debt management. Um, I really didn't have the time or the inclination to go to law school and become an attorney and deal with bankruptcy or what I later found to be a massively underserved, um, underappreciated. These are the heroes out every day. These consumer advocate attorneys that go and 
take on banks during the 2008-2009 housing led recession, I think people became more aware of who these attorneys are, but they dedicate their practice to consumer law and you know, going and taking banks on toe to toe, taking debt collectors on for the bad acts and behavior. And groups like the National Consumer Law Center out of Boston, Boston and Washington DC and others, PIRG and, and just this body of national consumer uh, advocates, uh, the NACA, um, these are wonderful people. Uh, they're doing a, they're practicing in an area of law that is uh, not as well paid as, as other attorneys, and some of them are super adept and skilled. And so, connecting these things can, and meeting these people and seeing that, well, there's some people that care about this the way I care about it, um, and we can connect and we can do things, and you're not alone in this effort. So I, I just became emboldened, I suppose, over time, um, and I happen to be in an industry that in the 2000s uh, through 2008 and 9, it was a scam. You know, I think debt settlement had a bad, bad reputation for so long because it deserved it. And it, there were people here, there was upfront fees that could be charged. The fees went, came and got paid before settlements. People started saving up for settlements. And then that means the programs were never going to work. And, and they didn't. And people got sued left and right. Most of those bad actors are gone. And it, it took a long time to cleanse it. But that's, I, I probably went off on a little bit of a tangent, but no, I love hearing all of that. That that really, truly, I love it. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I care about enough uh, of these issues that led to a place where I think I've made an impact, and I'll continue to make an impact. I mean, I'm very proud of the body of work that I've been able to accomplish and the reputation that I've built over this time. And I've connected with like-minded people. So now this network isn't the Consumer Recovery Network, which is the name of my company and the name website. Um, it's, it's not just a couple of counselors that think like me or my mentor, Dana Beyer, who's just one of the most awesome, smartest ladies about debt that I've ever met, and definitely a mentor for me philosophically and um, you know, implementation-wise doing the job. Um, th these are fantastic people. Wonderful. Thank you. I really appreciate hearing all that background details, where you've been with it, where you... We, you know, what got you so angry? Um, that all makes a lot of sense to me. So, so let's um, <clears throat> move into, do we want to talk about the do nothing option or? For sure. Okay, For and, sure. and then let's move into changes now during COVID, during this pandemic, like. Well, it's a segue, right? So historically, there's times where people should do nothing and stay doing nothing. It's just a small subset of people. So doing nothing about debt when they can bite you, like sue you, and you know they could garnish your wages, levy your bank account, put a lien on your property. If you don't have any assets and you're on a fixed income that's exempt from creditors, they couldn't take it if they wanted to because it's disability, social security. Doing nothing is the strategy because you don't have the money and you can't put it together over enough time to accumulate it because you have just too many expenses, um, you do nothing. Now, doing nothing today in a COVID-19 reality is something, it's a temporary step. But for the last couple of months, I have been an advocate of, okay, let's talk about it. Okay, let's do the math and let's do nothing. Let's go ahead and decide to do nothing because you're furloughed or you're laid off or one of you in the household has lost their income. And yes, you have resources that you can deploy, but should you? Um, if you're in a situation today at the time that we're recording this, and there's so many forbearance options that you have with credit card companies, personal loans, all of them, all you have to do is call and say, can I get this forbearance? And they'll put you on 60 days right now, today, mid-May, mid people are calling in and getting 60-day forbearance on their credit cards. Some are 90. Some are only 30 days, but you have to they invite you to call in the next month and see if you need to do it again. So you, and they don't report you negatively to the credit bureaus. So you, you get this reprieve. No, you didn't pay your interest that was due that month. So that part gets tacked on the next month's bill. But for peace of mind and for conserving cash that you don't know how much of it you're going to need and for how long, it's not a bad idea. You couldn't pay, so you stopped paying, but you had forbearance, right? And then there's the, okay, well, I, we don't know when normality or each of us have probably a different sense of what normality will be, but when it comes to debt, income and expenses, um, I don't know that you know, it's probably still a few months out for a lot of us to get to that place. And so I'm not a fan of implementing any plan 
without some level of certainty. And right now there's too much uncertainty. So doing nothing is in this conversation and as it relates to COVID-19, that just makes a lot of sense. I have talked to people who have took in forbearance on their mortgage, as long as it's one you don't have to have, make a balloon payment on, um, and they're gonna put on the back of the loan. And um, FHFA just came out uh, yesterday and talked about how you can do forbearance on Fannie and Freddie-backed uh, loans, FHA, USDA, VA loans as well. And those loans, the, the forbearance payments are going to, you can actually literally wait to pay them until you sell or rebuy the house. So, I mean, there's, a lot of benefit to doing forbearance on a lot of debt, even, even though you may not need to, just because of the uncertainty. And I've seen people take advantage of them. They're like, okay, I can pay my mortgage, but I'm gonna go on forbearance. I'm gonna use that money to pay down my higher interest credit card debt. Well, I mean, they're getting really creative. Um, right. I can pay my student loans, but I'm gonna go on forbearance with those. And they don't charge the interest on the federal loans anymore. Um, and I'm gonna use that money to take care of this, that, and the other thing. So it's, it's, there are some opportunities to be do nothing. There are some opportunities to be do nothing over here, but use to take advantage of the stimulus funds that I got and settle a debt from two years ago that I haven't had the money to pay over here. A lot of, of creative thought around doing nothing or half of nothing. Okay. And in the do nothing, it's not do nothing and not talk to anyone. It's, it's, it's to be in clear communication with student loans, mortgage, credit card, as to what you're doing, meaning you're gonna not pay for now, right? You're gonna you're choosing forbearance and you're letting them know. So there's clear communication that's happening in this do nothing. Yeah, yeah you communicate it because uh, if you don't, they're they're gonna consider you just late, like a normal right. late, and report up to the credit bureau. So this right. preserves your credit, preserves your options, preserves your cash in a time where. It just makes absolute sense to do that for some. Now, if everything's ducky, if everything's going well for you financially and you didn't lose your job and, you know, you're in, a, in an area where it's necessary and this is going to be fine for you, I, I don't know that you need to do a lot of these things unless you have some past debt issues that you need to clear up. Again, get creative and I'm willing to talk to you about that. Just schedule a call. You can go to my website, any, any page on my website, get that help in the upper right-hand corner and it will show you how to schedule a call with me. And I can walk you through strategic ways to think about doing nothing. Right. I just wanted to clarify, do nothing didn't mean do nothing and let's ignore this and stick our head in the sand and, you know. No, that's, yeah, not, that's that. Not that do nothing. It's, it's, it's responsibly choosing and communicating clearly with all these different people that we have a relationship with, right? Yeah. Um, right. We are exchanging money and all that with and have loans with I, yes i suppose i should point out the the detriment to doing nothing the way you just said no it's not this do nothing it's this um yes so the lawsuits people get sued every day across the united states it's, it's an enormous strain on court resources for unpaid unsecured debts they get judgments against them they get sued they get the paperwork they don't know what to do so they do nothing right they don't have any resources to do anything with so they do nothing and they put their head in the sand and think, you know, I don't know what to make of this. It's going to go away. Please go away anyway. And uh, it doesn't. And they get a default judgment against them. The vast majority of collection lawsuits in this country end in a default judgment because people do nothing. It's not that kind of do nothing that we're talking about. Exactly. I'm always saying, like, these are not easy calls to make. But yes, please call the IRS person. Please call your mortgage person. Please, yeah, have good, clear communication, you know. Checking with your body, take a deep breath before, during, and after. What you know, do whatever you got to do, right? Use yep. All yep. Okay. Wonderful. Um, so, so much more, but I feel that we've covered some good ground here, and I want to get people to you um, so that they can ask you questions. Enjoy. You have an incredible YouTube channel. You have a great website. And so it's consumerrecoverynetwork.com mm -hmm. is how people find you. Anything else that you want to share with my folks at this time before I just send everyone to you? Anything I, else? Yeah. Yeah. I think that more than any time in my life growing up as a child, um, household that had some money problems. They weren't, they weren't immune to money problems growing up and some um, circle of, you know, second 
family members, things like that. So it, it just wasn't talked about. So I can say from that perspective and then going into the kind of work that I, I do, uh, massive confirmation that people don't talk about money problems. I think that we're at a point in United States society and dealing with this and the massive amount of bankruptcies that are going to come from COVID, the massive amount of failed small businesses that are going to come from COVID. And it being such a shared experience, nobody is immune. Every one of us knows somebody that's lost a job, going to lose their business. I mean, it's just look around you. And my thing is, is like, take the opportunity to talk about this stuff. Mm. So scams that proliferate is because we don't talk about money problems. We don't talk about debt issues. And if we did, a cooler head who's not emotionally attached to the issue would point something out to you. You know, you'd be surprised how much having this conversation, I guess, and it's probably the first time I've said this in any interview or anything is like, I hope, this is true. I, I, I hope that this very unfortunate set of circumstances that is global turns into a much more open dialogue about debt and money for each of us individually. And maybe just listen to this and maybe you don't need any help and maybe you just wanna reach out to your circle of influence to start a conversation so that you can see if they need help. It's just, the more we talk about this, the less problem it becomes, the less you know, one-off Michael Bovies exist in the corners of the internet and hard to find. Some of the stuff that we talk about on our videos and our website become Again, conventional wisdom, common knowledge. It's not, it's, it's not rocket science. And I, I just, I hope this starts a conversation. 100% agreed with you. And Michael, such a pleasure to finally meet you. You bet. I cannot believe it's taken me this long, but here we are, right? In the middle of this pandemic and good things are coming out of it. And it was finally time to reach out to you. And I'm really grateful that I did and I'm so happy to introduce you and your work and your body of work and all of it to my community and so thank you so much for being here today thank you Barry hi again thank you so much for joining me today what you heard here is a delicious sample of the loving guidance heartful inspiration and practical tools you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. I hope you found something here to take with you, a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your own money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations, and grab your favorite person. You can find out more at barrytesler.com.